Well, I think we have received most of our guests. Uh, so uh, my name is Ana Elena Gonzalez Treviño, and I am the director of the Center for Mexican Studies, which is an office of the National Autonomous University of Mexico in the UK, based at King's College London. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome you here tonight. Um, the pandemic has made of us video producers and video artists and uh, uh, has slowly made us familiar with the, the new available uh, technologies to, to be together and, uh, and to communicate. And this is why I, I conceived this uh, video recorded uh, material as a means to continue our job of uh, uh, promoting Mexican culture and Mexican-British encounters. And in this context, um, I asked Richard Motsley, the chairman of the British Mexican Society, um, to make a video about the life, the extraordinary life of his great, great uncle, Alfred Motsley. And he undertook the task with great professionalism and to a very high standard, which for which I am very, very grateful. And also to Diana Motsley for doing the, the translation of, of the video into Spanish. So you will be able to see it uh, with subtitles, with Spanish subtitles. I am also delighted and honored to welcome Antonio Saborit, the director of the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico, um, and uh, to Claudia Zert, who was in charge of digitizing the Motsley molds kept by the British Museum, and uh, they uh, were digitized by Google. Um, the National Museum of Anthropology launched this project uh, already uh, at, at its outset. Um, today we are launching Richard Motsley's video, which is enriched by family mementos such as photographs and letters um, that, that speak of, of the adventures that he had at a more personal level. Um, I am convinced that more Mexicans should know about the, the, the legacy left by Alfred Motsley. And um, this video, I think, will fulfill that, potentially reaching uh, many, many viewers who will be fascinated to learn about what he did. Um, before watching the video, I wish to thank the British Mexican Society who has always supported UK. Um, I, I also wish to thank the Mexican Embassy uh, in the UK and the British Embassy in Mexico who have been also very supportive. Um, the Global Network of Mexicans Abroad, La Red Global, who has also been unconditional in, in supporting our activities. and. Um, the UNAM UK team who have been tireless in, in, their, in their promotion and, and um, looking for ways to improve um, our performance here. Manolo, Annalise, Angelica, Christian, and Eulalia who have done a fantastic effort, um, especially for this so very special event. Um, I would also like to take this opportunity to um, tell you, invite you, all of you to register for our events because we organize events frequently. Um, 
what we're going to do right now is that we're going to watch the video prepared by Richard. Uh, it lasts 33 minutes and please keep your microphones off uh, for the duration of the video. After that, there will be a conversation between Richard, Claudia and Antonio. And after that, there will be some time for questions. Um, I will then ask you to write the questions on the chat box uh, within the Zoom app. Or if you're watching us live on Facebook, you can also use the, the chat box on, on Facebook as well. Um, thank you very much. Enjoy the show and see you in a while. Good evening. Let me start by giving some background about me. I am an engineer who happened to spend seven years of my career in Mexico, where I built and then ran a power transformer manufacturing business in Guanajuato. I also happen to be the great nephew of Alfred Maudsley. In addition, I'm currently the chairman of the British Mexican Society. These various factors combine together to inspire me to prepare this talk with a great deal of encouragement, I have to say, from Anna Elena Gonzalez Trevino, the director of UNAM UK. This is not a talk which will go into detail about Alfred's archaeological discoveries. Others are much better qualified than I to do that. Instead, it will chronicle his life, explain what led him to Mexico and Central America, and assess what have been his enduring legacies. Some family history will help to explain how Alfred acquired sufficient wealth to finance so many archaeological expeditions. His grandfather, Henry Maudsley, my great-great-grandfather, became a successful and famous engineer during the early years of the Industrial Revolution at the beginning of the 18th century. He was known particularly for developing and then manufacturing lathes and other machine tools. We shall celebrate the 250th anniversary of his birth next year, 2021. One of his sons, who worked in Henry's business, was Joseph. Joseph also became a renowned engineer, principally remembered for making steam engines for ships. Alfred was the seventh of Joseph's eight surviving children. My grandfather was the third. Wealth from this business gave Alfred the resources to fund his archaeological expeditions. Alfred was born on the 18th of March 1850, close to London. He attended Harrow School, where he claims he didn't excel other than in the making of maps. In 1868, he went up to Cambridge to read natural sciences. He graduated in 1872 and then enrolled as a medical student. Before starting his medical studies, he persuaded his brother Charles to accompany him to the West Indies because he wanted to see a tropical forest. They sailed first to Jamaica, then on to Panama. There they took a train across the isthmus before sailing to San Jose, Guatemala. They then went by mule to Esquintla, followed by a two-week trip, again on muleback, to the Guatemalan highlands, including Antigua and the Lake of Atitlan. 
After returning to the coast, they sailed to San Francisco. From there, they went first by train, then by horse-drawn coach to Yosemite. They shared the coach with a party of ladies from the East, including Mrs. Gouverneur Morris and her two daughters, one of whom would, many years later, become his wife. After Yosemite, they traveled on to Salt Lake City and then in the Morris's private rail car to Niagara. They finally arrived home in early December. Alfred returned to Cambridge to continue his medical studies, but he was much affected by coughs and colds, so he decided to give up university and flee to the tropics. In January 1874, he set sail for the West Indies. His intention had been to grow tobacco in Jamaica, but by chance he met William Cairns, the incoming governor of Trinidad, who offered him the role of private secretary. Cairns was then appointed governor of Queensland in Australia, so Alfred accompanied him there, also as private secretary. Sometime later, Alfred moved from Queensland to Fiji, where he became private secretary to the governor there, Sir Arthur Gordon. Sir Arthur's extensive interest in ethnographic artefacts rubbed off on Alfred, who collected various items from the Pacific to take home to England. In his role as private secretary, he made extensive tours of Samoa and Tonga and was then promoted to Consul General. This is a photograph he took of his house in Tonga. After six years, Realising there was unlikely to be much career progression for him in the colonial service, he resigned. By late 1880, Alfred was again bound via Trinidad and Jamaica to British Honduras, which we now call Belize, before sailing to Livingston in Guatemala. This small port at the mouth of the Rio Dulce was where passengers transshipped to a small stern wheel paddle steamer for the journey up Lake Isabel. This was the same route taken 40 years earlier by the renowned travellers John Lloyd Stevens and Frederick Catherwood, who were on their way to Copan and Kirigua. Alfred had with him the exciting volumes written by Stevens and illustrated by Catherwood. After landing at Isabel, he procured a guide and some mules and set off for Kirigua. This map of the region will help you to get your bearings. Kirigua is towards the bottom of the map. Once arrived at Kirigua, he cleaned moss and other vegetation off the stele and took photos on the large glass plate negatives he'd brought with him. So began the 20-year phase of exploring Mayan sites, which was to include seven trips in total, including three further visits to Kirigua. As the cleaning of the stones revealed ever more inscriptions, Alfred became determined that these should be preserved by means of both photography and detailed drawings. This approach contrasted vividly with that of his predecessors, who had either produced general, albeit often beautiful drawings, such as this one by Catherwood, or had merely taken away pieces of ruins for collectors or museums in Europe or the US. After a brief stay in Curigua, he rode on despite problems with the arrieros, mule drivers, to Copan. Here he took more photographs before continuing to Guatemala City. His next stop was Antigua, from where he climbed the Volcan de Agua. Sadly, the cloud was too heavy at the top for good photographs, 
although he did photograph this general view of the volcano. Many more days in the saddle, crossing rivers by canoe with the mule swimming alongside, eventually led him to Tikal. By the time he arrived there, he had amassed a workforce totaling 22 mozos. Although he only had a week to spare at these ruins because he needed to catch a steamer in early May from Belize, he was able to clear the surroundings of what we now call Temples 1, 2 and 3 and also take some wonderful photographs. Following less than six months in England, he set sail again in mid-November 1881, retracing the steps of his journey with his brother several years earlier. This included crossing the Isthmus of Panama on land before sailing to San Jose, Guatemala. From there, he traveled by the new railway to Esquintla and on by mule to Guatemala City. As an interlude prior to returning to Quirigua, he climbed Volcan de Fuego with a Swiss doctor and a team of porters. In his diary, Alfred recalled how cold it was camping for the night at 11,000 feet, 3,350 meters. On arriving at Quirigua, he was pleased to see that the team of Mossos he had sent in advance had cleared vegetation from much of the ruins. The Mossos were led by Gorgonio Lopez, who was to become Alfred's trusted assistant on future expeditions. Here's a photo of Gorgonio, which Alfred took some 18 years later at Palenque. Much intricate cleaning of the sculptures was required before good photos could be taken, but the glory revealed was well worth the effort. This is Alfred's photo of Zormorf P. While in Guatemala City, Alfred had met a surveyor who told him of an interesting unexplored ruined city on the Rio Usumacinta. So, after finishing the season's original objectives at Quirigua, Alfred and his party, which consisted of Gorgonio Lopez, two of Gorgonio's brothers, plus 13 mozos, set off in early March to find it. After 15 days travel, the party then arrived at what we now know as Yashilan, here is one of his photos of Yashilan, followed by a present-day view. A few days later, the French travel writer and explorer Désiré Charney arrived. Charney, who had been hoping to discover a new city to include in his forthcoming book, was not best pleased to find another European ahead of him. But, as Charney relates in his journal, we shook hands, he knew my name, he told me his, and, as my looks betrayed the inward annoyance I felt, he said, it's all right, there's no reason why you should look so distressed. My having had the start of you was mere chance, as it would have been the other way round. You may dispense with mentioning my name, if you so please. I was deeply touched by his kind manner, said Charney. We lived and worked like two brothers on the site, and we parted the best of friends in the world. Alfred learned from Charney the technique of making papier-mâché moulds of carvings. Some years later, Alfred sent Gorgonio Lopez and his brothers back to Yashilan with instructions to make paper moulds of lintels. These are now in the British Museum's collection. Here is one of Alfred's photos from Yashilan. In preparation for his next expedition the following year, 1883, 
Alfred studied the making of plaster casts. He realised that plaster of Paris rather than paper moulds would be better able to reproduce fine detail, especially in large curved carved objects. He engaged a renowned expert in the making of plaster moulds of classical statues, Lorenzo Giuntini, to assist him. Giuntini was later to make an excellent bust of Alfred, which is in the British Museum. The process of preparing the large monuments for plaster casting was arduous. Trees and other vegetation had to be cleared. Up to a metre of alluvial silt had to be dug away. Kirigua is near a river which floods. And moss and lichen had to be scrubbed off. In addition to having Giuntini do the plaster moulding, Alfred had engaged a qualified surveyor to prepare detailed plans of the site. Alfred himself was the expedition's photographer. Giuntini's greatest achievement during this trip was the moulding of the Great Turtle, which required 600 separate sections using around 200 tons, using, sorry, two, two tons of plaster, all of which had to be carefully packed for the long journey back to London. In parallel with Giuntini's reassembly of these moulds in London to produce a cast, Alfred started to look around for a route to publish the results of his work, including all the photographs, sketches and site plans. His old friend, Osbert Salvin, offered to include them in a major work he was preparing on the natural history of Central America. I will return to that publication later in this talk. Continuing with his meticulous planning and the investment of large sums of his own money, Alfred again embarked for Central America, arriving in Copan in January 1885. A thatch shelter was built near the Acropolis, while Alfred adopted an old prison cell in the local village as his photographic darkroom. Here's a picture of one of the stelae in Copan. During this season's excavations, War broke out between Guatemala and Honduras on one side and El Salvador and Nicaragua on the other. Nearly all Alfred's labourers were called away, unwillingly, to serve as soldiers. When the war finished, one of the Honduran generals visited the site while he was touring the area looking for illicit stills. Alfred took a photograph of the general and his entourage. At the end of five months, the paper moulds of the inscriptions along with 1,400 plaster cast sections, had to be packed and transported in boxes to the port of Isabel. Alfred's next trip, which commenced in October 1887, took him to the highlands of the Peten region. Here, because of the absence of good maps, he made use of astronomical surveying instruments that had been lent to him by the Royal Geographical Society. During this trip, he explored Ishkun and Yakshe. At Yakshe, one of the Mossos shot a howler monkey for food. It turned out to have a baby, which adopted Alfred after he fed it with condensed milk obtained from some mahogany loggers camped nearby. Alfred chose Chichen Itza for his 1889 field season. The trip didn't start well. Much of the moulding paper was damaged by seawater during the journey. A further problem for Alfred was the booming demand for binder twine in the USA, which required huge quantities of Yucatan sisal, 
which in turn drove up the demand for the labourers Alfred needed on site. He eventually found sufficient labourers in Piste. They all went home to their village at night, leaving Alfred completely alone in the ruins. Later in the season, however, he was joined by Henry Sweet, an American photographer. It was Sweet who took the famous photo of Alfred in his quarters in the building we now call Las Monjas. Having Sweet with him was particularly useful when both were struck down with fever. As Alfred comments in his journal, both of our attacks fortunately occurred on alternate days, so we could take it in turns to be nurse and patient. These photos show then and now from Chichen and show the huge difference that has taken place. During his stay in Chichen, Alfred made a detailed survey of the site, remarkably accurate even when compared to modern surveys, and he did detailed dimensional drawings of various of the principal structures. He and Sweet also used the undamaged part of the moulding paper to good effect, especially to record the decoration of the lower chamber of the Temple of Jaguars. Their food started to run scarce by the end of June, so on the 2nd of July they struck camp and returned to Merida, ending the longest and most gruelling of all Alfred's expeditions. Two years later, in early 1891, Alfred returned to Mexico, this time to Palenque, which had been made famous by Stevens and Catherwood nearly 50 years before. Following a trip to Mexico City, he sailed from Veracruz to Laguna de Terminos, which is now known as Ciudad del Carmen. There he chartered a small steam-driven vessel to take him and his equipment up the Rio Usumacinta. He had with him a surveyor, Mr. Price, whom he had engaged in London. They disembarked at Monte Cristo, now known as Emiliano Zapata, then had to find pack mules to carry the equipment 40 miles to the ruins. As it turned out, the scarcity of mules meant that some equipment had to be carried by Highland Meyer, who were returning to the Sierra after their annual trip to town to sell wild cacao and buy machetes and salt. Both this initial journey and a subsequent one to collect the remainder of his equipment from Monte Cristo were beset by problems with arrieros who were excessively fond of aguardiente. This photo gives an idea of the amount of clearing work needed on site. Alfred's trusted assistant, Gorgonio, together with his brother and son, arrived on horseback from Guatemala in early February 1891. They immediately set to work making paper moulds of inscriptions in the temples, although much of their initial work had to be redone as it was ruined by a sudden unseasonal heavy rainstorm. Many of the inscriptions had incrustations of limestone created by decades of water filtering through the stonework above. This had to be chipped off, requiring hours of careful work with hammer and chisel. As with his previous ones, this expedition was not without its labour problems. Some weeks they had over 50 men on site, but other weeks none would appear. However, two small boys walked six miles from the village every day to bring them tortillas before being fortified by chocolate and sweet biscuits prior to starting their six-mile journey home. 
Alfred was able to take extensive photographs while Mr. Price, the surveyor, completed a detailed plan of the site. These photos show the palace then and now, and also show one of Price's plans. Alfred and Price finally left the site in late April, following what had been a difficult mosquito plague season, but one rewarded with superb photographs. At least he didn't have to contend with the volcanic ash, which met me and my family on our first visit to Palenque in 1982, after the volcano nearby had exploded. Since their initial meeting in Yosemite, some 20 years previously, it appears that Alfred had kept in regular contact with the Morris family. It seems likely that he met them, particularly their daughter Annie, from time to time during these years, both when passing through New York and on summer trips to Europe. This culminated in Alfred's marrying Anne Carey Morris in Rome in May 1892, by which time Alfred was 42 and Annie 44. Annie was the granddaughter of the celebrated Gouverneur Morris. Gouverneur was his first name, not his rank. Gouverneur Morris was a lawyer who served as American minister in Paris at the time of the French Revolution and had many exciting escapades there. In 1889, the Peabody Museum in the US, inspired by Alfred's work at Copan, decided to mount expeditions to do more work at this site. These took place in 1891-2 and 1892-3. The museum then invited Alfred to lead their third season. So, in early October 1893, Alfred and Annie embarked from Liverpool to New York. From New York, they went to Chicago to see the World Columbian Exhibition, celebrating 400 years since Columbus's first trip to the New World. At this exhibition, which had been mounted in Seville the previous year, there was a Guatemalan pavilion that contained some of Alfred's plaster casts, along with large format prints of his photographs, 30 by 24 inches, which was huge at the time. From Chicago, they made their way by train to San Francisco, sailed to San Jose, Guatemala, then took the train to Guatemala City. They then commenced a sightseeing journey through the highlands en route to Copan. This included a trip to the top of Volcan de Agua with Annie on her sure-footed mule and Alfred on a less sure-footed horse. They were accompanied by Gorgonio. When they couldn't find anywhere to sleep in one of the villages through which they passed, they pitched their tent. Some of the rooms they were offered as sleeping quarters were so full of mice and rats that the tent apparently seemed preferable. On several days they had to cross ranges of hills, ascending and descending several hundred feet, and ford many rivers at the bottom of barrancas. Even Annie's sure-footed mule found some of the descents difficult, and remember that she was riding side saddle which must have made it an even greater challenge. They passed through Zacapa in late February 1894, from where Alfred wrote to my father while Annie wrote to my grandmother. In Alfred's letter, which enclosed some US and Guatemalan stamps for my father's collection, my father would at that time have been 13 years old, Alfred says, 
Your Aunt Annie has ridden 400 miles on her little mule without any mishaps and has enjoyed it all thoroughly. He then goes on to list some of the many birds they've seen on their journey. Annie's letter to my grandmother describes some of the places where they spent the night, ranging from schoolrooms to a room in an old convent. She says, I have cooked many breakfasts and dinners over my fire. By early March, they arrived at Copan, where Alfred took more photos, while Gorgonio and his sons were busy cleaning sculptures prior to making paper moulds. From Copan, they ro rode to Quiriguá, a journey made unpleasant by unseasonal heavy rains. They were only able to spend two weeks there before they had to leave for the coast to get a steamer for New Orleans. At Quiriguá, Annie had acquired a baby brown squirrel, which she named Chico. It remained her much-loved pet for more than two years. In around 1898, Alfred took over an hacienda and small gold mine around 10 miles west of Oaxaca. They built a house close to the mine named Zavaleta and used that as their winter home until 1906. It appears that Alfred had hoped to carry out archaeological investigations at Monte Alban, some 90 minutes um, horse ride away from Zavaleta, but that proved impossible to arrange for various reasons. Here are photos of the inside of their house and of Annie in her hammock. I have a photo dating from their time at Zavaleta, which has on the reverse, in Alfred's writing, the church at Quilapam, Annie and the mules under the tree. Here you can see the photograph and here's a blow up in which you can just see Annie and the mules. I also have four letters written by Alfred to his brother, Athel, my grandfather, during their winters at Zavaleta. These talk of Alfred's initial optimism for the mine, then go on to detail his concerns following landslides during the summer rains and his worries about staff. He mentions the successful installation of an electric generator and how this made evenings in the house more pleasant. He talks about the challenges of creating an attractive garden in an area that has virtually no rain from November to April. Much watering was needed, he said. Sadly, it appears that the mine was never an economic success, leading to its eventual sale. On their departure from Zavaleta, Alfred and Annie took a house in San Angel, then quite separate from Mexico City, for the winter of 1906-07. Here he carried out research on what we now refer to as the Templo Mayor complex. In the early summer of 1907, they left Mexico, never to return to Central America. The 1894 expedition to Copan had been Alfred's seventh to the Mayan area, but was his last. The next task was to assemble all the photographs, drawings and plans such that they could be published. Alfred also needed to find a home for the casts made from his plaster and paper moulds. Some went to the Cambridge University Archaeological Museum, the rest to London's South Kensington Museum. Artists were employed to make careful drawings of the casts. One of these, artists who helped with the publication by colouring photographs, was Adela Breton, the sprightly gentlewoman from Bath. She had already travelled to archaeological sites in Mexico before being introduced to Alfred. 
Here is one of her stunning watercolours, which is now in the Bristol Museum. For publication, Alfred had accepted Goodman and Salvin's offer of a special section within their mammoth 67-volume series, Biologia Centrali Americana. Original copies of these large format, excellent quality volumes are now very expensive. There's currently one on sale for £25,000, if anybody's wondering what to give me for Christmas. But facsimile copies are available. In parallel with work on the Biologia volumes, Alfred and Annie wrote A Glimpse at Guatemala. This is a beautifully produced volume printed on handmade paper with exquisite photographic reproductions. A modern facsimile version is readily available. Alfred and Annie had a comfortable townhouse in London, but wanted a base in the country for their retirement. Tours around in their new Maudsley car, built in the Maudsley Motor Company, founded by Alfred's nephew, Cyril, enabled them to find what they wanted near Hereford. The house, called Morney Cross, commands a splendid view across the River Wye Valley. The present owners of the property found a slightly damaged stone carving of a cockatoo half buried in the grounds. It is reasonable to assume that this was something Alfred and Annie had commissioned, perhaps to commemorate a cockatoo they brought back from Central America. After settling in Morning Cross, Alfred resumed work on his translation of Bernal Díaz del Castillo's Historia Verdadera de la Conquista de Nuevo España. This translation was published in five volumes. It's a splendid edition, which includes many photographs as well as fold-out maps and plans. Alfred worked from a copy transcribed by the Mexican historian Genaro Garcia from a photographic copy of the original held in Guatemala. Garcia had copied Diaz's original faithfully, preserving its archaic orthography and lack of punctuation. These factors made Alfred's task as a translator extremely taxing. Alfred also engaged in extensive discussions with the British Museum about displaying his casts. These eventually led to the opening of the museum's Maudsley Room in 1923. By the mid-1920s, Alfred and Annie were in their late 70s. Here's a picture of them with him looking very like how I remember my father at that age. But by then, Annie's health had started to deteriorate and sadly, she died on the 12th of September, 1926. During the mid-1920s, Alfred was working on an abridged single-volume edition of Bernal Diaz's history, which has been reprinted many times and is still in print. He also wrote reminiscences of his time before he worked in Central America in a book entitled Life in the Pacific 50 Years Ago. On the 23rd of January 1931, Alfred died in his 81st year and was buried in Hereford Cathedral alongside Annie. There were extensive obituaries in the general press and also in specialist archaeological journals. All praised the excellence of his Mayan work, while those by colleagues and friends commented very positively on his charming manner coupled with his kind and gentle disposition. Following his death, most of his photographs went to the British Museum. 
his notebooks to the Royal Geographical Society, and his important collection of Guatemalan and Mexican textiles to the Victoria and Albert Museum. So what can we say were his greatest legacies from which we still gain benefit to this day? Firstly, his excellent plaster and paper moulds and his glass negative photographs. The very high quality of all this work has stood the test of time. With the almost total decipherment of Mayan glyphs achieved since Alfred deaths, the precision of these images enables glyphs to be read even where the original carvings in the field have weathered beyond recognition. It is wonderful that Google Arts and Culture has funded the recent digitization of this archive, thereby both preserving it and making it more readily available for future scholars. Secondly, the rigor of his site surveys, coupled with the establishment of geographical coordinates using celestial navigation, set standards which were not always exceeded until the advent of GPS. Thirdly, his comprehensive translation of Diaz's Historia de la Conquista, which is recognized as a masterpiece. And finally, his wonderful collection of Guatemalan and Mexican textiles, which I mentioned earlier. This resides in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Before I finish, I must make some acknowledgements. I must first acknowledge very sincerely Ian Graham's biography entitled Alfred Maudsley and the Maya. This has been invaluable to me in the preparation of this talk. And I'm just so sad that Ian is no longer with us, as I'm sure that a double act between him and me could have produced a much more exciting talk. Secondly, I must also thank the British Museum and the V&A for making photos available on the web that I have used liberally. I shall leave you with the photograph that Annie and Alfred used at the end of their book, A Glimpse at Guatemala. Adios. Many thanks. Excellent. What, what a treat it is to, to watch this video and to imagine this fascinating moment of discovery of realizing that there's something valuable beneath all that shrubbery and roots and things like that. Um, I would like to, to ask uh, Richard, Antonio and Claudia to, to unmute their microphones so, so they can tell us about their, their experience regarding this. Thank you very much, Anna Lena. Just before Antonio and Claudia uh, comment, can I just correct one minor error? I realized that I said Henry Maudsley was active at the beginning of the 18th century. It should, of course, have been the 19th century. So apologies for that. But I, I, I've noticed that not just Antonio and Claudia, but there are some renowned um, archaeologists and I feel very humble um, and I await comments and criticisms from all of them. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, what did you think, Antonio and Claudia, about the video? 
or, or what can you tell us about Alfred Motsley, who seems to have been such an incredible character? Go ahead, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I really like the video. Thank you very much, Richard, for um, giving such a nice um, summary, really, of Alfred Motsley's work in, in Mexico and Central America. Um, it is quite difficult to really squeeze what he did um, during his visits into half an hour. That is quite impressive in itself. Um, and just thinking about his legacy in terms of um, Maya archaeology and Maya epigraphy, especially, um, it's, it's really, well, incredible how much we can still find out about um, you know, not just Maya archaeology, but also the history of discovery, the history of scientific discovery of Maya archaeology by looking at Alfred Maudsley's legacy. I mean, I'm speaking from the British Museum now just because that that is my background in, in this case. Um, but I mean, obviously, also looking at, at his publications and other work in other museums. It, it was fantastic uh, listening to you uh, Richard, uh, it, it it wasn't impossible for me to to remember here in Mexico City. Right now, we are working on a on an exhibition on a very famous uh, Mexican artist and archaeologist, also Miguel Covarrubias. And uh, Miguel Covarrubias uh, made an illustrated edition of. Uh, the book by Bernal Diaz del Castillo with a translation made by Mosley in the 1930s, uh, which is more than anecdote. Miguel Covarrubias also discovered the Pacific uh, in the same way as Mosley discovered the Pacific, Pacific for himself. As you know, uh, Miguel Covarrubias wrote the first book on Bali Island and that was a turning point in, in, in his life as an artist. Till this moment, he was very well known uh, through his art. And after his book on Bali, he, he turned to anthropology and archeology. span So it's very interesting that that, uh, that was in my mind all the time. I don't have images right now of Covarrubias of this edition, but it was a special edition for a for a for collectors, so to speak, of good editions. Uh, maybe you have one one copy of 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 this Bernal. And the other the other thing is uh, important for me right now is the the link between Mosley and the old National Museum in Mexico City, where Genaro Garcia. Uh, the editor of Bernal uh, was a researcher and later on he was the director of the museum. Uh, uh, what I'm sure is that Mosley is waiting not, now he has a biography, now he needs a novel uh, <laughs> no, to, to, to make just, to do some justice to, to this fantastic life. 
can I just ask Antonio um, whether his researchers in the museum uh, still make use of the plaster casts um, and the photographs and whether the recent um, work done by Google has been helpful to his researchers? Yes, of course. The curator of the Maya gallery, uh, Daniel Juarez, knows the, very well this 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 set, and uh, and of course he knows a lot about uh, Alfred Mosley. And uh, well, Claudia just well met him uh, a couple of years ago. It wasn't wasn't it, Claudia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, exactly. And uh, yeah, uh, it's it's. I think that we there's a lot of work to be done on these fantastic photographers of the Maya of the Maya lands, because we have Mosley, we have Charnay, of course, mm -hmm. and we have Roberto Mallet also, and, mm -hmm. and well, many more. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of work uh, to be done with their work uh, uh, in, the, in that region, no? Yeah, maybe to pick up on that with the photographies, um, Originally, when the British Museum started working on digitizing the Maudsley collection, um, we were thinking mostly about the plaster casts, just because those are the ones that are mainly mentioned. And um, although obviously people know that the glass plate negatives are in the um, museum archives as well, because many of them have been published by Maudsley himself, I think it was more an afterthought um, by us originally, but then when we de developed the digitization and we were lucky enough to get a very high resolution scanner, basically a digital imaging station to digitize the glass plate negatives to a very high level. And that in itself really, I think opened our, as an us curators, our minds a little bit as well with how much more can be done with the old photographs. Um, because one thing that was surprising, but also extremely fascinating is that the quality of the photographs, especially of the glass plate photographs, and I'm sure that would be the same for Charnay's and Mahler's photographs, is so much better than anything digital um, photography can do nowadays. And even what um, you know, normal film photography of the mid 20th century could do, the details that you can see after digitizing them to a high degree, because then you can more easily zoom in. You don't actually need a, a glass or something, a, a loop um, to look at them is, is incredible and has been quite helpful with reconstructing some of the inscriptions, for example, that have been weathered since then. Yes, yes I mean, talking, Antonio, about um, uh, Miguel Covarrubias, this um, lovely book that I, you probably won't be able to see it because of the, um, the, the way this works. But uh -huh. Mexico South is beautifully illustrated and um, has some uh, drawings in it, which are every bit as good as the, the drawings that um, uh, Maudsley produced. Yes, yes, you're right. I have a copy here of Mexico South. If, if you want it, I, want, I, I can show it for, uh, to the group. Uh, but, but what, what your, your, your video, bring us to to this uh, I, I i i will try to explain it, the this wonder with uh, uh, around the the maya civilization 
it all started with uh, Stephens and Cathergood. With this, it is not only a bestseller, but a long seller, a, a friend of mine would say, the, that has shaped the careers of so many archaeologists. Uh, it, is, it, it is a book that is nowadays, it, it is read. And, uh, and, but I think that we have got to recover the life and times of those explorers uh, that came later, like Desiree Charnay and, uh, and Mosley. The, the anecdote is fantastic. Mosley say, oh, don't worry. Uh, if, you, if you want the credit as the discoverer of Jack Sheeland, you can keep it. Uh, you don't have to mention my name and all that. It, it, is, it is incredible. Try to imagine this dialogue between these two persons in the middle of, of the jungle. No, just uh, one foot from the from Usumacinta River uh, and uh, covered by the sounds of the jungle. It's, it, I, I think, I, I wouldn't say, we need, we need a novel, we need a writer uh, to, to, make, to do some justice to this, uh, this, uh, initiatives, no? You've got to be crazy to do that in that time, no? Nowadays it's hard. Imagine, imagine then. It's with well, there are, there are interesting um, stories about the different ways in which they traveled because Maudsley traveled with his photographic equipment and um, uh, the plaster of Paris for making casts. Charney apparently wouldn't travel anywhere without large quantities of the best French wine. <laughs> yeah, well, it, uh, that, that was a must also. But, uh, we have to remember that the negatives were on glass, very yeah. fragile. No, we have now smartphones. That epoch, they, they had to, to transport uh, plates of glass and to prepare in, in situ to prepare the, the plague in order to have a, to take a photograph, it it was it, it really really something, and I and I think that Teoberto Maler had had something to do with with uh, training Mosley or discover discovering the photograph for Mosley. I don't know if it's this is true. Right. Mm. I'm not quite sure if they, um, I, they certainly met later on and discussed the details of, um, of their photographic equipment, um, uh -huh. in which way, you know, which way the exchange went, I'm not quite sure, at least Maudsley did not uh -huh. really comment on that, that, um, that we can see that. Um, they had the advantage, both of them, of um, traveling at a time, well, advantage, advantage, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to that dry plate photography um, was there already. So you could basically take the semi-prepared plates with you. You did not need to put on the chemicals in that moment. Um, but um, I think Alfred Maudsley did actually, he, he did develop quite a few of his photographs. Um, he did usually, you know, build a little <clears throat> dark chamber to be able to develop his photographs to check that he had the lighting right and so on. Because obviously it's not as if he could just turn on his flashlight or, you know, kind of um, have a flash or it's not as if flash photography existed at the time in that sense. 
So um, he often then started to develop some of his plates um, to make to ensure that he had got the lighting right or that he needed to wait for the sun to come at a different time. Um, for example, through the project, when we when we visited some of the sites and wanted to retake his photographs, we not only realized what an excellent photographer he was, so much better than any of us, um, but also how much work he had put into, for example, at Kirigua. We just could not get the lighting right. We tried in the morning, we tried at lunchtime, we tried in the evening, we tried at sunset and so on, until we realized that he must have actually asked his workers to cut the brecha into the jungle, which obviously mm -hmm. we could hardly fell half of the trees at Kirigua, so that the light would shine um, at a specific angle onto some of the sea layer to have the perfect lighting. It was just impossible to do that um, nowadays, not just because you would have to, to fell the trees, but just the thought that he put into his work and into these details is astounding. Anna Lena, I see there's a, an interesting question on the on the chat um, uh, from uh, Dudley saying Alfred and Annie left Mexico on the eve of the 1910 revolution. In his writing, does Alfred mention the political situation? The only thing I've read um, is that uh, he, he got involved with politicians when he was trying to get permits. And uh, before he went to Palenque, for example, he went to Mexico City so that he could get a letter from the officials in Mexico City. And his biggest problem, and this resonates greatly with me when I was setting up the factory in Guanajuato in the 1970s, was getting things through customs. <laughs> and uh, the problems were exactly the same in the 1970s uh, as they had been in the 1880s and 1890s. And he found that he needed letters from politicians in Mexico City to be able to get things through the customs. But I haven't seen anything um, uh, in terms of the political situation. No, no there's very... Sorry, Antonio. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, there's very little. Um, we have actually just been looking at that um, because there is a um, forthcoming volume actually by the by historicas at UNAM um, about uh, viajeros extranjeros and el porfiriato uh, durante el porfiriato, and so we had a look at, at Maudsley's potential comments and so on, and he was very. I don't want to say, I don't know if he wasn't interested in that sense, but yeah, all of his comments, both in his field diaries and his publications are far more about practical things as in getting or not getting things through customs, um, getting permits. Um, I mean, a little bit more during his work in Guatemala and Honduras about the war in Central America, um, but there was no general kind of, um, commentary on on anything to do, for example, with the with the era of Porfirio Diaz um, or anything like that. In 19 in 1906-07, uh, everything was very, pretty calm in in Mexico City, and that helped him to uh, visit the excavations in what now we know is Templo Mayor. At that time, the Escalerillas Street. 
uh, and also the National Museum, where most probably he got his permission to go to Palenque. Uh, the, the museum was part, the National Museum of Mexico was part of the Ministry of Education and most probably, I'm pretty sure that he got some papers from, from there. And uh, there were plans also for a new museum. Mexico, at that time, uh, there were some concerns with the, the advanced age of Porfirio Diaz. He was uh, in, his, in his 80s and everybody in the political realm were worried about, uh, about his age and who was, who, what, what's going to be the, the, the person to succeed him. But everything till, I think it was till 1809 that the unrest began in general terms. So mostly couldn't see anything of this. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, we are getting a few questions in the chat box, but I would also like to invite the audience to make their questions directly by, by turning on their, their microphone and their camera. Um, we're getting a question uh, about whether um, Maudsley may have had any influence on Harry Burton um, and uh, who, uh, with the photographs or character with the Tutankhamun excavation. Do you know about that? Not from my knowledge, although obviously that would be more, I'm not an Egyptologist, so um, I wouldn't know if Burton might have um, mentioned him. I think it might be a little bit too late in um, chronologically just because um, the photography changed quite a bit like the, the technical basis for photography had changed quite a bit between um, the 1880s and the early 20th century in, in the sense that as far as I know they did already use some kind of flash photography for example or, or some kind of light source a little bit more um, advanced in, in the Tutankhamun tomb but yeah as I said I'm not an Egyptologist I might be wrong in that one of um, between two of his uh, Mexico or uh, Central America trips, um, uh, Alfred did go to Egypt because one of his brothers had been doing some archaeological work in Egypt. And he went there and uh, he traveled on one of Mr. Thomas Cook's first tours in Egypt, <laughs> which is an interesting little um, uh, gem. I like it. I just saw the question as well that if um, Maudsley's photographs are exclusively of archaeological sites or also local scenes and so on. Um, I mean, apart from like there are some, especially from the um, from the Finca, from the Savaleta house in Oaxaca that are more, let's say, family pictures. Um, the vast majority of his images are from archaeological sites. You still see local villagers in the sense that he often used local workers as, as a scale, let's say, putting them next to mm. the monuments to show how large some of the monuments were. But um, unfortunately, he did not take many. I mean, he did take a few, but not very many, um, let's say, more anthropological, what we now would, would call anthropological images. Someone asked about the, the anniversary that we are yeah. going to 
Well, why not? We should try to do something. It's a fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic excuse to organize uh, at least a Zoom meeting, no? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Elena? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. You can count on that. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, it paradoxically, it, it has the, um, cut distances. And uh, thank you, Stephanie Black, who is, who is there. Would you, like, would you like to say anything live, Stephanie? Thank you for your message. But we are very, very happy to have Stephanie Black, the cultural attache from the Mexican embassy in the UK, present with us. Or anyone else who, who would like to. To, to say something directly. Um, May I? May I? Yes, of course, Janet. Um, thank you, Richard. Wonderful talk. Did Annie keep, the wonderful Annie, keep a diary? I don't know. Um, uh, she, the, the lovely um, book um, on handmade paper, A Glimpse at Guatemala, um, was written half by her and half by him. In fact, I think she probably wrote more of it than he did. Um, and so she must have had diaries, um, but what happened to them, I don't know, because I don't think they ended up in the Royal Geographical Society where all of Alfred's notebooks were. But it would be fascinating to know whether they did exist anywhere, but I've never seen any. They are certainly not um, registered with the Royal Geographical Society. As part of the background research, I went through a lot of the Maudsley materials there and um, unfortunately did not come across <laughs> anything like that, that I would have certainly um, <laughs> I looked at that in more detail otherwise. Claudia, perhaps uh, they met with uh, Ed Edward Seller and his wife, Cecile. Uh, and Edward Seller and his wife, well, his wife uh, wrote main, most of her book on, of their book on Mexico. It's pretty much the same case with the, the one on Guatemala, no? Yeah, they probably, I mean, um, that is one thing that that is actually, I kind of wish we would have more details about who Maudsley met in, in the later years in, in Mexico, both in Oaxaca, he obviously had very good contacts. You know, he was a close friend of Celia Nuttall and so on. Um, mm -hmm. And especially during his time in Mexico City, um, it would be very nice to know with, with whom he met in detail as he was, I mean, you know, well-connected obviously, but also well-regarded as a, as a Maya, Maya yes. researcher, basically. Mm -hmm. There's, there's um, an interesting, sorry, Claudia, there's an interesting comment from Norman Hammond uh, saying credit should go to Annie Hunter and her sisters. Uh, they were extraordinary. I mean, these, these people who did these most marvelous watercolors um, were, were very, very skilled. And they, they took details from the um, plaster cast and from the photographs and turned them into absolutely stunning um, watercolors. Are Annie Hunter's watercolors in the British Museum, Claudia? Uh, the drawings, some of her drawings, um, less than we would like because she clearly must have created a, a massive amount of drawings for the Biologia publication. Um, we do have some, especially from Copan, um, 
which is quite interesting in the sense that um, we do have very few examples of um, how much she was also involved in the in the process of the publication that was very interesting for us because um, it is quite interesting that nowadays most people talk about the Maudsley drawings when uh, in in fact um, I have to say Maudsley's drawings of the hieroglyphs are not very good <laughs> he was as bad as I am in drawing hieroglyphs as, as good as his photography was um, and uh, when in fact obviously it was Annie Hunter and her sisters and in the publication it is always noted who did the drawing and um, Alfred Mosley himself was always very careful in, in acknowledging um, her input there but we do have some drawings uh, by, by Annie Hunter where she then has annotated them um, with the publisher where basically apparently she got some proofs back and was saying like, no, 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 you can't publish it like this. This actually has to go here and this has to be a bit larger and so on. Um, we also have some, unfortunately, very few moments where I think in the later years, especially in his last travel, he took some of any um, Hunter's drawings with him, Maudsley took, and to then double check them in, in, in situ at Copan and Kirigua. So um, the detail of that is still astounding, considering especially that at the time, no one could really understand Maya glyphs. Um, and even nowadays, some of any hunter's drawings are still used by epigraphers, um, at least to update modern drawings. Excellent. Uh, Professor Norman Hammond, please. It's nice to have Alfred Maudsley taken seriously at last. Um, during the period when he was working, um, he received no public honours whatsoever, although he did get an honorary degree from Cambridge. At the same time, archaeologists of similar achievement in Egyptology and classical archaeology were piling up the nitrates. Um, but poor Alfred Maudsley wasn't even offered so much as an MBE. Um, and unfortunately, this attitude to Maya archaeology persisted for many years. When I began work on the Maya more than 50 years ago, um, I found in the cellars of the British Museum, Maudsley's glass negatives down at ankle level, some of them broken, being kicked around, and also uh, some of his um, papier-mâché casts. And it's very nice to know the British Museum is now taking him seriously. Uh, and the casts that he gave to Cambridge, unfortunately, I found in the 1970s being chopped up with a chainsaw because the then uh, director of the University Museum did not consider Maya archaeology relevant to the university's teaching mission and wanted the space for more didactically relevant displays. Gosh. Incredible. Well, Amusingly, the, the, one of the chainsawed uh, cast from Cambridge was then put back into the British Museum um, collection of Maudsley casts. Uh, the Cambridge casts are in a store somewhere on the outskirts of Cambridge, and the um, face of the ruler from Kinigua Steeler E has now been um, put up in the museum but as a detached sort of clipping, rather like those Victorian clippings of people's signatures from letters. 
Well, that, that brings us nicely on to the, the next question that's come up. Um, uh, what items are still on display in the Cambridge Museum? Not much. Yes. Yes, and we have... We... Sorry. No, Stephanie, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, just wanted to, to congratulate, uh, again, the organizers. Uh, it's good to see faces also uh, in the midst of this challenging times. Uh, some of the people in the screen I haven't seen in a long time. So, so it's always good to, to see smiley faces and, and people so thrilled to be learning um, about this amazing character, I would say. Um, congratulations to Richard uh, for putting up the, the, the documentary. He hadn't seen it until today. So, so that's wonderful. To Anelena, I know that this idea of having this, this project was long time ago there and, and then uh, with the pandemic was a bit difficult to put together. So, so congratulations for that. Claudia, I haven't seen you in a long time, uh, but we, we met, uh, I think three or four years ago mm -hmm. uh, when the, the project just started. Um, and, and Antonio, I'm the cultural attaché at the Mexican embassy here and been following up on, on the project for, for a few years now. Um, I remember just what, what you were saying about how at some point, um, my uh, archaeology was not taken seriously enough, I would say. Um, and I remember when I was first introduced to the Google Maja British Museum project, well, the Google project, I think it changed names again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I remember that I was told that one of the reasons why um, this, this was not only interesting from the point of view of what was the object of study, but also because there were storage issues related to the casts. So that, that comes to what Professor Hammond just mentioned, um, to the, the some, sometimes museums have to make decisions according not necessarily to the interest of study or knowledge, but actually to very practical, um, you know, issues or challenges regarding even space. And, and I believe, I'm not sure if that's the case still, that there was a huge problem with storage at the British Museum at the time. I understand that they were uh, renting more spaces and it was all part of a restructure. And, and that was, I was told, one of the reasons why the digitalization of all the archive was not only going, going to be useful um, for scholars to, to be accessible for everyone around the world and to learn more and, and have access to, to what Alfred mostly uh, did at the time, uh, but also solve the problem. So I'm always triggered, like uh, thrilled of, of to know how practical problems or questions come to be so relevant in how we understand the world. Um, so yeah, just wanted to mention that. I, I, it is my understanding that Cambridge has changed a little bit its position about uh, Mayan archeology span now. I, re I recall going to a conference on, on Templo Mayor actually, um, three years ago, uh, which mm -hmm. was amazing. Um, so I don't know, little by little, Mexican culture, <laughs> and I would say that the greatness of our civilizations, uh, past and present, are, is considered in this country. I stop over there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephanie. We have a, a question uh, by Bridget Goldsworthy, sorry, please. Can, can she be allowed to unmute Angelica? Um, 
Bridget Goldsworthy. Yeah. Oh, no. Yes. Um, just Hello. a minute, please. Sorry about that. Yes. There you are. There you are. <laughs> thank you. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Richard, thank you so very much for a wonderful talk. I'm speaking to you from glorious Teposlan Morelos. And I wish you were all here. It's absolutely wonderful. And <laughs> your talk brought everything so very close. I'm writing about um, the biography at this moment of Adela Breton. Mm. And the whole world of archaeology at the turn of the century in Mexico was absolutely fascinating and it was extraordinary how many British um, people were in and around the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, you don't mention the Le Plongeon who I know are quite disgraced up to a point but they'd made some fascinating um, studies of the Yucatan. And then of course Adela herself, who was, as you rightly pointed out, um, hired by Alfred Maudsley and felt very proud and very, uh, very much on a commission to uh, check the work that he had done. But one of the things that was so interesting was the introduction of color because of course so many of, at that time obviously, um, photography was only black and white. And the fact that color could be painted onto these glass um, plates and also onto the negatives was I think a very interesting um, introduction and recognition of a fundamental element of all the art in Mayan sites, particularly obviously the ones where color uh, was still visible. So I just think that that is important to recognize because obviously Alfred Maudsley himself saw that that was an important element. And uh, the to Antonio's comment about a, a novel being written. Well, I'm, I'm writing a little bit of the novel of, of Adela Breton, but what is fascinating is the conditions in which women archeologists or women um, copyists as they were then known, uh, actually were in Mexico and working at the turn of the century. So, I hope to capture precisely that moment. Thank you. Yes, she was a, an extraordinary woman and her work um, uh, in the archives of the Bristol Museum is, is quite stunning, uh, especially some of the work um, that she did in places like Teotihuacan, where she sort of had a roll of paper and you right. see um, this whole frieze copied absolutely perfectly and then colored perfectly uh, and probably looking much better than the original looks today because it has weathered or been vandalized. Exactly. I don't know why, but I have a, an extensive file of, on uh, Adela Breton, Bridget. 
so if you want a copy, I, I will gladly share it with you. I have uh, several Xerox uh, uh, copies on her, her writings. Uh, and maybe it, if you want it through Ana Elena, we yes, of course. could connect and have our email. And I'll send you gladly all this material for, for your work. How very generous. Thank you so much. No, nobody knows Adela Breton, so it, she's mm -hmm. important. Her work is very important. And Teresa Uriarte at UNAM, by the way, she's she's working something on her also. Uh, something very academic, of course, not a novel. And I, 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 do, I do love novels also. <laughs> I think they, they are important, very important. Well, thank you so much for your attention. Yes, and these lives that appear to be like novels, no? Uh, yeah. I, I can only begin to imagine this. It, it's a kind of, I, I know nothing about archaeology, but it's a kind of golden age you know, for these discoveries where you could go to this place and find an unexpected treasure. It's really fantastic. Yeah. There's another, uh, another archaeologist, Alfred Tosser. He was present there in, at, the, at, the, at the end of the at the end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th. It's very interesting. The history of archaeology is fantastic, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, and but, but, but most of the time, archaeologists are writing the, their own history, which is, which is good, of course. But it's kind of, uh, we need a, a stereo, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not, how to say? It's it's very difficult the history of their uh, of archaeology I think, and we 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 should help them to to create a to build a, a history of 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 our archaeologists. Their lives are fascinating, and their the way they they build knowledge is fantastic. It is also quite interesting that it seems slightly random which are the archaeologists who become famous or who become very well known because um, I still find it baffling as Norman Hammond said how mm -hmm. little Alfred Maudsley is known outside of um, of uh, you know the academic circles let's say while um, you know other archaeologists are, are quite well known um, while I think he has had a far more interesting life than some <laughs> of the others um, so it, it seems a bit random so it would be nice to you know it's like events like these are perfect for for making people more aware of what's out mm -hmm. there and of course mentioning people like Adela Breton I remember a, a conference admittedly an academic conference but about um, women in the Maya area a couple of years ago both archaeologically but also historically mm -hmm. and um, it is interesting to see how many female researchers um, there were at the time that um, you know, are, are not very well known nowadays, um, just because they're often subsumed under their husband's work or something like that. So there's plenty of work still to do for historians as well. Yes, I mean, one of the other British women who was traveling around in the early 1900s um, was um, Mrs. Alec Tweedy. 
and she actually went to um, stay with Alfred Maudsley at Zavaleta. And uh, she was a, a, a great friend of the president and had introductions everywhere. I've just finished reading the book that she wrote in 1906, and that is um, a fascinating read. Um, not all of her views on uh, Mexico and Mexicans might have been terribly palatable in Mexico at the time, but as a historic document, it's very interesting. Um, Elizabeth, I see Elizabeth Bacavano, would you like to say something? Can, can you please unmute her, um, Angelica, please? One moment. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Angelica? Yes, well, I'm here, yes. but she's not yes. she's not on mute. Mm -hmm. uh, it's E. Yes. Yeah, the name was not very clear. Sorry about that. E. Punto Baquedano. Uh-huh. Yeah, she has the permission, but doesn't turn Ah, uh, you have to do it yourself, Elizabeth. Sorry, yeah. there you are. Thank okay. you. Ah, sorry about that. Thank you, Angelica. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to say uh, how much I have enjoyed this talk by Richard. It's, it's such a joy to hear about your wonderful relative, but also to put this in context in, in a few minutes was extraordinary. Um, I wanted to say that um, together with um, the works of Adela Breton, how much we use of the drawings that she produced in Teopancasco in Teotihuacan. Even today, when we talk about Teopancasco, the illustrations that she produced are the ones that are published, such as in Teotihuacan City of Water, City of Fire. Um, also, I wanted to mention the exhibition organized in Bath two years ago on Adela Breton, uh, where they produce a small catalog. Jane Sparrow wrote a wonderful little book called uh, The Remarkable Miss Breton. Mm -hmm. So that, that was a really, I am being, um, I'm, I'm making this advert for Jane because she's a great writer and she put this together herself. This book is uh, on sale at the Bath Literary Society. So um, uh, that exhibition was excellent as well with all the watercolors by Adela Breton and some of the objects that were collected uh, during her trip to Mexico. So uh, just to say that that is important. And of course, Alice Dixon, uh, Le Plongeon as well, who, who was a, a contemporary uh, with Maltzley. And um, we can even see her house in, in Dolich today. So um, again, just thank you for such an inspiring evening. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, there is time for one more question. 
before saying goodbye, but I believe everybody has really enjoyed, enjoyed the talk. Um, Philip says it was the highlight of 2020, which is great praise indeed and very much appreciated by, by all involved. So thank you very much for that. Um, is there anyone else who would like to say anything? Okay, so we will say goodbye. Thank you very much for attending this presentation. Richard, congratulations. From here, you go on to the Oscars, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the video will be available on our YouTube channel. Look for Centro de Estudios Mexicanos or Center for Mexican Studies, UNAM UK. It will be made public after today. And um, I look forward to hearing from you, to, to knowing uh, if you have other proposals of things that we might do together. I'm very, very happy to collaborate both with the British Mexican Society and as we know with the Mexican Embassy and the Red Global, of course. Uh, thank you very much and see you soon. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.